What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about all these matters and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. What's going on, people? Welcome back to Changing the Narrative. Today, I have special guest, Dr. Lee Merritt. She's a graduate from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry in New York. She completed an orthopedic surgery residence in the U.S. Navy and served nine years as a Navy physician and surgeon. She's been in private practice of orthopedic and spinal surgery since 1995 served on the board of the Arizona Medical Association and past president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. At 63, she won a female bodybuilding championship, and she was also featured on the John Stossel Show. Recently, she's been writing some articles, touching on the vaccine and the pandemic, and she's also been doing some interviews on different talk shows as well. On that note, I hope you guys enjoy the show. So um, recently, you wrote an article called COVID-19 Vaccines, A Cure Worse Than a Disease. I've seen a few of your interviews online talking about these vaccines. So here's the million-dollar question. What's in these vaccines? Well, that's a really good question, and it'll be interesting to see if we find this out now. Um, During what people need to know, and the reason why this is so kind of nefarious, in my opinion, the way this works— you don't need to publish what's in the vaccine if you do an EUA, an emergency use authorization, which is what they did. So essentially, once things come onto the market fully, you have, you know, you've seen them. We all get those when you get your drugs from the drug uh, store. It has this list of a million things that can go wrong. They don't have to put any of those on it. And in fact, people say, the nurses say, when you open up these vaccine uh, containers, the, that piece of paper is completely blank and it said left blank purposely. It's printed on there. So they don't have to tell us. So we know some things, but we don't know all of the things. I would say this is a novel concept. It's been being in development now for 30 years, more maybe. But it's 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 not the way normal vaccines work. So just so people know, The way normal old-time vaccines were made, they took a tiny bit of piece of the pathogen, pathogen being just a generic term for anything that makes you sick, that's infectious. And then they grow this pathogen, by the way, in big vats or in eggs, and then they take it and they, they put a tiny piece of it, or maybe they weaken it in some way, and they inject it into you, and that it stimulates your immune system. Now, vaccines were never profitable until we had what are called adjuvants. What happened is in the late 90s, they started putting in these chemicals that would non-specifically stimulate your immune system. And then they would add to, so they would add those chemicals to the to the vaccine. So now we have these vaccines where you need even less pathogen and this non-specific stimulus. And that's kind of when we started having problems. Not only I think the profitability drove the market. So people weren't asking, they weren't clamoring for vaccines. What happened is when they got profitable, then there was a big push to push them. The second thing is that the adjuvants are associated with a lot of problems. One of the adjuvants that was in the the Gulf War anthrax vaccine is what they determined finally was the reason for Gulf War syndrome. So 
Um, so when it comes to these vaccines, they're completely different. What they are is a small piece of genetic material wrapped in a lipoprotein coat and um, has some other things in it we don't know. That The idea is I give you this and this lipoprotein coat allows it to go all throughout the body and then it deposits this genetic material that gets your genetic material and your, your cells to make the spike protein. The spike protein is the part of this disease that makes you sick. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's it's so and so one of the problems right up front, even without knowing what else is in here, one of the big problems with this whole concept, in my opinion, the craziness of it is, you know, if you get sick with with a virus, let's say, and I and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it a virus, but I'm gonna tell you up front and your listeners, this there's a lot of science that we have been uh, probably misdirected about. And viruses may not exist the way we think, okay? They, they may not exist at all, actually. And what we call viruses may be something totally different. But what whatever we want to say is our traditional idea of a virus was it floated around in the air and, and a couple viruses, didn't take very many, a couple virions, little tiny particles, got into your nose or your eyes or your mouth or someplace and got picked up Usually the, the, the cold season virus, the winter viruses, or nose viruses, we think, and they they start propagating in your nose. And it takes a while to hook on to something. This part we're pretty sure of. It takes a while to get attached and to start to replicate. And during that period of time, when there are not that many viruses around, your immune system kicks in and recognizes there's an invader, and it goes and tries to get rid of it right then. And sometimes it'll get rid of it. So you never know, you never get sick and you don't know that you ever had a cold. Sometimes it doesn't completely get rid of it, but you develop a cold and it stays in your upper respiratory region. It doesn't go any farther, but it 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 then finally uh, your immune system takes it out. And then the third possibility is it it the immune system sees it as an invader, but can't stop it completely. And it goes on and gets into your upper airway fully, it gets into your lungs, now it starts spreading around and you get very sick and can die. That's been kind of the story of COVID, okay? Many people look at little kids, they get exposed to it, they get, they, we know from studies, they can be immune to it and they never know they had it. Many young adults, they get immune to it, never know they had it. And many, you know, and most most adults of any age, they get it, they fight it off and they survive. I mean, even in the, in the upper age groups, the survivability is is you know, quite high. I mean, I, I, I'm trying to think if there's an age group, there's probably some age group that's under 90%, but most of them, it's above 95, 96%. So right. that's the way it normally works. Okay, now we take, think about this. You started with just a few little virus particles that got into your nose, your eyes, or your mouth. Well, now just think about this. You're getting an injection that by their own estimate is going to put billions to trillions of these particles all over your body. So from the get-go, if you don't have a great immune system, if you're elderly or immune compromised, you will you can succumb to the same disease of COVID just from these particles going all over you. And that's a problem. And that's why early on in this whole thing, remember they before they started our vaccines, they were fully vaccinating uh, Israel. They were pushing to get everybody vaccinated in Israel. So you have one fairly small country with a kind of homogeneous population. You've got one vaccine. It's kind of like a petri dish. It's kind of a test. And it, it about and it was actually February 12th. They came out with some data, 
And when that data was independently reviewed by other people, an epidemiologist named Seligman from, from Marseille, France, and his partner, they looked at it and they realized, no, this isn't 95% effective. That's talking point. What this is, is killing people, especially the elderly. And they realized that if you looked at that date, it was like around the 12th of February or around the middle of February, about 12% or 12.5% of the Israelis had been vaccinated, but 51% of the COVID deaths were in vaccinated people. So you see, if it hadn't been making a difference, you would have seen 12.5, 12.5 across the board, right? It wouldn't have mattered what your vaccine status, if, if the vaccine worked, presumably the deaths in the vaccine would have gone down, but in fact, they are the ones that went up. Now, when they looked at it by age, they looked at the over 65-year-olds and they found out that those people were 40 times more likely to die of COVID if they took the vaccine than if they didn't. But it didn't stop, even though people screamed about it and they, you know, a bunch of us said, because quite frankly, the, the media, the lay press is more powerful than the scientific truth. And so that didn't make it into anybody's inbox at Time Warner or whoever is the, the people now putting out all the, you know, CNN and all that. So unfortunately, because that isn't the narrative. The narrative is, oh, if you don't get your vaccine, you can die of COVID and you don't, you could spread it and blah, 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 blah. Well, yeah, that's not happening. That's not what's going on here. Yeah, I read recently that uh, in Israel, well, there was one doctor saying that I think it was 70% of his patients that are coming into the hospital um, were vaccinated. And those are the ones that have uh, been admitted to the emergency room. So um, I went to a Walmart recently and I asked uh, pharmacists for the ingredient list of the Moderna vaccine, because that's the one that they administer. And um, she gave me uh, a little pamphlet and um, some of the ingredients say um, uh, polyethylene glycol, 2000 mistral, um so sucrose, uh, cholesterol. I, I don't know what any of these things right. are. Um, so, the, what we know is they have, so to back up to that question, they had genetic material in a lipoprotein coat that has the cholesterol and blah, blah, blah. Okay. But but they also have, you're right, they have they tell you they have polyethylene glycol. Now, polyethylene glycol has never been used in vaccines before, but it's very common in soaps and and other things that we contact frequently in our lives. Consequently, 70% of people have some allergy to polyethylene glycol. Now, we have seen already the effect of that is, we presume it's from that, is that there are 10 times the anaphylaxis, you know, you know, people where they get the shot, then they get the sudden shortness of breath or hives or airway closes off, they, they get very, or they have cardiac arrest, boom, they just drop over. And we've, that's, that's 10 times higher than it is in non in these other vaccines i'm going to tell you so we know that's in there i'm trying to think what else we know if you have a list go ahead and read it and i can i can comment on it yeah they um have cholesterol listed in there they have um one two dish troil i i don't even know how to say right. phosphocholine tromethamine um tromethamine hydrox Chloride, acetic acid, sodium acetate, trihydrate, and sucrose. Right. So things. that makes it sound okay. I'll tell you though. Here's the problem. That makes you sound like they really gave you a list. They didn't give you anything. <laughs> and that's, you know, this is the equivalent of if the if the police wanted to pick me up, and instead of giving out a picture 
or instead of describing that, you know, I'm a five foot nine female, blonde, you know, light brown hair, green eyes, blah, 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 blah. What they would say is, hey, look for somebody made of sucrose and uh, dextrose and some cholesterol, protein, uh, glucosamine, you know what I'm saying? Right. <laughs> it, it tells you the ingredients kind of, but it doesn't tell you all of them and it doesn't tell you in a way that you can use it. So what the next thing we know is that this thing is coded. The, the coding that goes around the genetic material in the Pfizer and the Moderna, which with I'm, that's two I'm the most familiar, is called Matrix. The ma- It's called Matrix M. Isn't that comforting? You're going to be shot with a matrix. And the matrix is essentially a uh, nanoparticle, lipoprotein particle that coats this thing to allow it to be going into your cells. And according to Novavax, that actually built this thing years ago for genetic therapy, it's targetable. They can use that to actually target, depending on somehow how they do this, they can target the tissues they want to infect with their genetic material. Now, that may be important because one of the things we're finding in the vaccines, clearly not listed, and by the way, they don't have to list them in the EUA. In the EUA, the only things they have to list are the things that are critical to the function of the, let's see, critical to what it's supposed to do. So if I have, it's kind of like saying, um, you know, if I have to tell you what I'm going to use to build this computer, I might tell you, you know, to actually make it run doesn't take every little whiz bang in there. I'm going to just tell you what the CPU is and the the very bare bones to turn it on. Everything else I'll let you find out later when we get full approval. So that's essentially like this. They're telling you they've got this is this is this is the part what they've described for you is the spike protein uh, genetic precursor and the 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 part that goes in and makes the spike protein. They have not told you the other things. So for example, Go ahead. No, so I was going to ask. So, with the emergency um, use authorization um, or emergency authorization use, you're saying that that doesn't provide, or that says that they don't have to provide a complete list of the ingredients. Right. Does and it say that in the actual um, the EUA? Well, it, it doesn't say it in the EUA. That is the principle of EUAs. That's the okay. principle they've adopted, the FDA has adopted. Okay, so the point being that that's, that's why when doctors and or doctors' offices and pharmacies get the vials of these vaccines, these non-vaccines, they come with a blank page. Instead of having the package insert, which is in grim detail, if you've ever seen a doctor's office package insert, that thing is like long, big, it's in grim detail of everything that happened during the course of the of the um, of the of the investigational phase, some of it's nonsense. I mean, I'm always most of my time explaining those things to patients is to reassure them that most of that's nonsense. Like for for example, I mean, I use this medicine myself. There's a medicine called Singular. It's a wonderful medicine for asthma, but you will find buried in the risks of Singular is infectious bronchitis. Now, let's go back to our understanding of how things happen. You don't, you can't be infected from a sterile drug. I mean, you know, it's not, it would, but see, during the during the, the investigational phase for a drug for asthma, somebody's going to get infectious bronchitis. I mean, that's just the way it happens. You know, somebody's going to have an asthma attack, somebody's going to have this, 
And so they have to say worsening of your asthma. Yeah, it didn't worsen because of the drug, but it just didn't solve it. But but they have to put down infectious bronchitis, even though it's nonsense. That's that's just something that happens to asthmatics. And while you were doing the study, some asthmatic got it. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. some of what they have is regular. Well, it's the government. Let's face it. A lot of regulations are crazy. But in this case, they're not telling us anything. And all we're doing is finding these things out little by little. For example, the graphene. You know, um, we found it on, you know, the, the um, I can't remember, uh, something Colona in Spain. Uh, I think they're in Barcelona. But they they uh, they looked at it under light microscopy and under um, uh, uh, transmission electron microscopy. And they said, here's a picture of graphene. Here's what we saw in the vaccine. I think that was, I can't remember which, if that was Moderna or which one that was, but they said it's got graphene in it. So, um, and then other people, I have a colleague who also saw stuff that looked like graphene and also a little purple cube on a fiber that came out of the bile, um, that microscopic, not something you would see with a naked eye. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's just lots of stuff in there. We have no clue. Yeah. There shouldn't be particulate matter like that in, in any liquid <laughs> that we're going to inject into people. So, yeah. So, um, I know you've talked about Pfizer and Moderna. Now, what about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Is that any safer or is that one that you would recommend? No, I don't recommend any. In fact, I'm starting to worry about my toothpaste, given what I know about this program. <laughs> I'm, so, no, I, I wouldn't take any of them personally. I'm not going to take any of them. But the Johnson Johnson is a little, it's just a, it's the DNA version. Okay, so... Mm. And I'm again, I'm not a, a geneticist and I'm, I'm not a vaccine expert, but I can read science and I can read the literature and I can talk to friends. So I asked, for example, about this DNA. Well, what about the RNA versus the DNA getting into your own genome, right? That's what everybody worries about. Well, if, is this going to DNA going to be part of me? Well, it could be. When they give you, when they clearly give you DNA, um, it can, it can be spliced into your genome and you do become some kind of transhuman. I mean, uh, you know, people say, am I going to be a GMO human? I mean, call it what you will. This is synthetic DNA, and there's a potential that it gets intercalated into your DNA. But RNA shouldn't go into DNA. On rare occasions, there are things that are called reverse transcriptases that'll put them in, but that's not necessarily the case here. But what I learned, because I called Judy Mikovits, who does know about this stuff, and I asked her, and I said, so... Explain to me how this works. Can the RNA get in your DNA? And what she told me was this. She said, probably not by itself. But but what people don't realize is that RNA is a potent epigenetic controller of DNA. And what that means is the RNA they give you can go and feed back on your genetic material, your DNA, your DNA blueprint that makes you you, and change it. And here's what here's the biggie. One of the things that's happening right now is cancer. Cancer's blossoming out like spring, you know, lilacs. And the problem here is, is that the RNA, they said they did this, that they put in a a code, some RNA code into this that would dumb down your innate immune system. Otherwise you would reject this as foreign material. So they had to dumb down your own immune system so you wouldn't reject it. And in the process what it did was it also dumbed down your immune system's ability to monitor and to keep your own uh, cancer and, and viruses that are in your DNA. You know, we all have cancer and virus DNA in our DNA. That's how people mm-hmm. have genetic 
can, you know, families of genetic cancer, like the BRCA gene that we talk about for breast cancer and things. And there's genes that they look at for colon cancer and for different things that run in families. Okay, but there are things you can do to moderate your risk by keeping your immune system strong so it keeps those things in check. Well, part of this program is to take that away. They had to. And in fact, what you can prove it to yourself. Okay, you don't have to believe me. Prove it to yourself. One of the things that you happen, let's say you've had COVID and you have antibodies. You've been donating your antibodies. It's called um, uh, plasma. The uh, the pla- what, what am I saying? Re- re- I'm blanking on the word, but it's it's after you've recuperated. If it's recuperative plasma, you can donate it to convalescent plasma. That's what it's called, mm-hmm. convalescent right. plasma. You've gotten over it. You know, you've won. But somebody who might not have as good immune system, you can donate this plasma to them, and then it can help them. Okay, that's the principle. But you can't do that once you've had the vaccine, because what the vaccine does is completely wipe out your natural immunity to COVID. So let me get this right. I was once immune to COVID, and I took a vaccine that now makes me not immune to COVID. So I can become somewhat immune to COVID because now this vaccine has this synthetic RNA and things that are going to make this kind of stylized, um, um, you know, immunity that might be dangerous, yeah. might might work. You know, yeah. that's insane on the face. But the fact that it that you can prove that they won't take, they won't take these things from, they won't take you as a donor if you did if you yeah. took the vaccine. So that tells you that's what's going on, and that's what people know. Yeah, I think I read an article recently about um, I forgot what uh, organization it was that said that they they were they would allow or they wouldn't take um, plasma from vaccinated um, or people that were vaccinated. And I had a friend that recently uh, she went to the doctor and the doctor she had COVID, but she um, she was asymptomatic, and she said that uh, she, when she went to the doctor they asked her um, if she'd like to donate her plasma, but then but. First, they asked her if she was vaccinated. She said no, and she said the doctor got excited and you know basically went to go sign her up immediately. But he was pretty excited that um, she wasn't vaccinated, so that she can uh, donate the plasma. Um, Moving on a little bit, um, in your article, you talked about um, several instances of um, people having severe side effects from the vaccines. Uh, there was a phys- physician in Florida. I think you wrote about him having a brain bleed, um, a woman that uh, breastfed, she was vaccinated and she breastfed um, after and her baby died. Can you talk about some of the examples of um, people having these severe reactions from these vaccines? Sure. I mean, and there's there's families of these reactions. I mean, there's different kind of groups. And so what you're talking about and what I first got interested in looking at, um, and I and I, you know, also tried to publish, I finally did get it published as a as a medical, you know, kind of professional article, looking at this excessive number of people with pl- with platelet abnormalities. So what was hap- what ha- what got my eye was this guy down in Florida who he got a he got his injection. He was a doctor. He was a young surgeon in perfect health, according to his wife. He goes in, he gets his his Pfizer injection, first one I believe. And after four days, he starts having spontaneous bleeding, meaning his gums are bleeding, his nose is bleeding, whatever. So he goes in, gets some labs, and he has zero platelets. Okay. Zero. Now we normally have between 200 and 500,000 platelets. Um, what happened here? So they they admit him to the hospital, and 12 days after that, I think, or maybe it's 
it's a total of 12 days, eight days after that, at the day 12, I believe he died of a, he died of a brain bleed. So they couldn't save him. Now, I'm going to tell you what got my eye about that is that that's, that's not what we normally see when, even when we see platelet abnormalities. We've seen that after vaccines. We've seen it after viruses. We've seen it after a variety of things. You can develop what's called idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, ITP. Big words just means we don't know what causes it. That's what idiopathic is. And purpura is bruising. And thrombocytopenia means you're bruising because you don't have enough platelets. So we see that, but usually your platelets don't go to zero. And usually we can sustain you with platelets till we figure out what did it. And, and well, I think 60% of people recover. I can't remember the exact number there, but most people recover spontaneously when you take away whatever the offending agent was. Maybe it was a drug, maybe it was, you know, something. So this guy didn't have that. Okay. But not only that, once this guy got reported, then it turns out around the world, there were like 37 other cases reported. So I started to look at the VAERS, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. This is when I learned to use the VAERS. Now, VAERS is designed for a particular reason that they tell you right on their site. It's designed for vaccine safety to try to identify early unusual presentations of problems and unusual patterns. Okay, unusual problems, unusual patterns. So I pulled out using certain keywords. You look, you can search by keyword, and I searched by thrombocytopenia, pancytopenia, blah, 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 bleeding, you know, all sorts of bleeding, hemorrhage, all the different words that meant bleeding. And at the time, I only had, I think, 360 some patients. I mean, I'm not sitting over the paper, but it was like 360 people showed up. But there were 90 of these thrombocytopenia patients. And I looked at them and I said, many of these people will be dead based on what I'm reading. You know, you could have read the narrative. Now, I went back when I, just before I published the paper, several months later, I wanted to go back and update the numbers and I couldn't do it because now that 360 had ballooned to over 7,000. And I don't know where it is now, but I, but this is just one example of a problem. And and many and and then the other thing people need to know about theirs is that most things don't get reported. So if we are seeing seven thousand, you have to multiply that by ten to a ten by by ten to a hundred, and that's based on a Harvard study that was done years ago for public health service or somebody that looked at how many times it actually got reported. Because let's say it, one of the things I saw a lot, there were a whole bunch of brain bleeds, and some of them were younger. And some of them were older. But, but you know, if a 29-year-old comes into your emergency room and suddenly has a huge, massive brain bleed that kills him, that's unusual. So that we, we can pick up. But what the problem is, is if a 75, 80-year-old comes in with a massive brain bleed, they'll just say, oh, it's an, another old person that had a brain bleed, dead. It's not, a, it's just, it's so, it's so common. See, they're not asking the question, did you have the vaccine? And if you look, these people all pretty much had the vaccine within four days of the onset of this. So you're saying that only a percentage is being reported on the VAERS system. I've heard it's only 1%, but you're saying um, there's a lot of unreported. It's about 1% to 13% are reported. So again, if if you're seeing 100 cases and that's only 1%, then you're seeing 10,000 cases. Mm -hmm. So I've... Recently, I read that um, I think there's around maybe 400,000, 500,000 um, severe adverse uh, events from the vaccines. And then I think the deaths are up to uh, maybe around 10,000, if I'm not mistaken. Um, 
Yeah, and so if you, I, I can tell you, the 10,000, when, when you go to VAERS and you just look for everybody that reports. So it turns out that you can report into VAERS from like Canada. You can, I think you can report maybe from even other countries. But if you want to be clean about this, what I've been doing is, in all, to, so I could compare apples to apples and I knew what I was comparing to. I only look at people that they're, they're claiming died in the United States or its territories. And when you do that right now, there are about 5,900 deaths. Now, okay. but keep in mind, that's 5,900 5, deaths in eight months. If you go back 31 years in VAERS and you add all the deaths of all the vaccines we've ever rolled out together, they end up being 3,800. Mm. So there's a huge difference here, a huge so, difference here. So you're saying that um, with this particular vaccine, more people have died from this vaccine compared to all the other vaccines that we've administered. Put together. That's exactly yeah. right. Over 30 years. So, you know, this we haven't even made a year yet. Yeah. That should be enough. Again, there appears to be no threshold of stopping this. That should be enough to wake people up and say, wait a minute, how can we be letting this go on? But again, this isn't about making us safer, apparently, because if it were, you'd stop this. You would stop at the minute you, you would see this pregnant woman transfer something to her baby that killed him. That's, I mean, not pregnant, breastfeeding woman, transfer something to the baby that killed him. That alone should be a red flag for safety. Uh, right. The thrombocytopenia, that alone should be a red flag for safety. You know, in H1N1, the swine flu in what, 2008 or 2009, we stopped it for 53 adverse events. Can't remember how many were deaths, but it was maybe 21 deaths or something. But there were neurologic problems was a big issue. But 53, 5, 3, we're, we're probably having that much a day, if not more. And then keep in mind, the other thing is, in addition, so there's two aspects to the bears. One is it, that not every doctor, nurse, doctors are doing stuff. And the second thing is, are they being honest about what's getting reported? Because you don't just you don't put it in directly to theirs. It goes through a clearing and then they put it in. The people at CDC or some government office puts it in and they mm. update their site, for example, once a week. What you'll notice it feels to me a lot like the gold market over the last. You just know that gold should be going up more, but it just seems to, it got up to a certain point, then it just seems to sit there. That's the same way with the bears. You know, it kind of, it shot up to 5,000 or 4,500, and then it's just been creeping ever since. Well, now we have a whistleblower. Uh, Tom Renz, the lawyer that's bringing a bunch of cases, got a whistleblower. And this whistleblower who works in a different part of the government, not in the CDC, but knows how to look at databases because the whistleblower looks for, um, fraud. Okay. And it's kind of like the IRS. I don't know what part of the government, but it's kind of like fraud. You know, if, if, if the IRS wants to come after me for fraud or somebody for fraud, what they do is they don't necessarily just ask you for your recounting. They look at, well, you know, he says he's only like drugs that they catch. He says he's only making this, you know, 20,000 a year, but he's driving a Ferrari. Okay. They, they compare realities and figure out what's wrong here. And that's the way that this person looked at the databases like the Medicare database, death database, different databases that should be able to be reconciled, and they're not. And the point that that person's making is that it we instead of being 5,000, it should be 45,000. 
Now, if that's true, we've got a death toll over millions just in the United States from this vaccine. And I'm going to tell you, as a physician and just as a person, I'm trying to think of anybody I know that died of COVID. That I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I knew people that had it. Um, in fact, you know, it's going through my family, but I don't, I just don't personally know any close, I have no close friends or family that died of it, okay? But I can tell you already, I know a lot of people dead of this vaccine, including mm -hmm. friends. So, yeah. you know, I think, I think it's different. I mean, we have yeah. to. That's uh, scary. Um, also, in your article, you talked about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and countries that were using these treatments that were reducing the um, hospitalizations and the, the rate of sickness. Um, I remember back in when, when Trump was in office, he talked about hydroxychloroquine. And I think Anthony Fauci came out and said that hydroxychloroquine wasn't a great treatment. Um right. Well, what's what's the deal with that? Is hydroxychloroquine effective? And if it is, why the um, demonization of it? Right. It is. A, it, it. There's no one perfect treatment, but given very early, we know that hydroxychloroquine can treat what we consider to be viral illnesses like this. Okay, it's not just this. It turns out it probably treats flu great, and a lot of this may be flu. So hydroxychloroquine works if given early. And we, we know that from a, a number of doctors around the world that are doing it, like my friend uh, Brian Tyson. Now, keep in mind, Tony Fauci doesn't treat anybody. He hasn't treated anybody, I think, since he was a resident. He is an administrator bureaucrat, and he hasn't saved anybody's life. My friend Brian Tyson out in El Centro, California, he set up his own urgent care years ago. He is in the poorest county, one of the poorest counties, if not the poorest county in America, and yet he had, I think, I think he's over 6,200 patients with COVID that he has, he and his staff are treated, and none of the people that came in within seven days died. And there were, there, he's only had two hospitalizations. He had a few deaths in the later group, like one single digit. I think it was seven, maybe. Total people died in 6,200. Keep in mind, he's in urgent care. He's not. He's not the person to take care of him in the hospital. But th that those patients died. But they like two of them right then because they just came in way too late. So if you come in early, these drugs work. Now, ivermectin seems to work even later in the course of the disease. So people have protocols now, like Dr. Corey, Pierre Corey. You've probably seen or heard of or talked to the. He's famous for. He's an ICU expert. He has shown how you could save all these people's lives in the ICU. He was literally in tears with the Congress trying to explain this to people. These are people that are really treating physicians, okay? And I think we should start listening to them. And, and the, the level of fraud in the literature and in the, in the public, uh, you know, speech and everything, the level of censorship, basically the censorship is killing lots of people. You know, I looked around the world in August of um, last year, or August of 2020. I gave a speech out in Las Vegas about COVID and the or SARS CoV 2 and the rise of medical technocracy. It was a, at a medical meeting. And I, I uh, so, and I wanted to know kind of some numbers about countries and where, where are the safest. And because one thing you want to know is what's your risk of death. And I looked at, I think with my age group, because I'm 68, I think it was like, I have a 99.93% chance of survival. It wasn't bad. I'd take that to Vegas, you know. But but if the worst the worst death rate 
I found anywhere in the world was 0.14% or no, 0.17%. And that was New York State. Okay, 0.17%. So even in the worst day, place in the world, you still had a 99.83 chance of survival. Mm-hmm. Where was the best place in the world? That's what's interesting. It was Uganda. Okay. We don't think of Uganda as having the best, you know, fanciest hospitals and possible right. things, but they have the freedom to walk down to their corner store and buy hydroxychloroquine over the counter. They're used to using it because it's in a malaria area and they it's just not hard for them to get. So they don't have the problem that these poor people in El Centro did who were sick and couldn't get a doctor to do anything for a long time. OK, right. this is the problem. And we're hearing this all the time in this country that they somebody's sick. They go to the hospital. They're turned away and said, come back when you're sick. That's it. That's not to use. That's what's happening. You know, and there are other countries, Sierra Leone. India is a perfect example of how well hydroxychloroquine works. In fact, what happened is when they when when the chief science officer, chief medical science officer of India, uh, Swami Nathan, I think is the person's name, when she said, oh, no, don't use don't use uh, ivermectin, don't use it, don't use it, uh, blah, 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 blah. The death rate went significantly up until finally the government official said, go back to using ivermectin. And then the death rate went back down to zero. And now she is under prosecution by the Indian government. And I think the Indian government is prosecuting her essentially for crimes against humanity. I mean, she's in wow. trouble. And so, maybe around the world, other other look at that. Wow. So why do you think that hydroxychloroquine um, was being um, demonized, or our media in in the U.S. was telling telling right. us not to use it, as, along with Fauci? Why do you think that they were telling us this, telling us not to use this and drug? That's really kind of a big discussion to motive. But I will. But but let me start by saying this that. At first, I'll tell you how I got to where I what I believe right now, and that is at first when I was sitting home as an unemployed surgeon, just because they shut down all elective surgery and I wasn't doing trauma call anymore, I sat at my desk and I watched this all come across, and I said, and I was fortunate enough because I was a member of some organizations to get get hooked up, and I was watching the big guys like like Zelenko in New York and 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 Didier Raoul in France, you know, the big, the big player, people with lots of patients talking about how this hydroxychloroquine protocol could work. You needed zinc, you needed this, you needed that. And they were working it all out. You know, Peter McCullough jumped in, there were a bunch of people. And I'm just kind of sitting in the back listening to this and once in a while making a comment, but it's a whole bunch of emails. That was going around. We knew about it at least a month before we ever heard the word hydroxychloroquine out of out of uh, Trump. So we knew it was working. We knew the Chinese were using it, and that it had been used in SARS. That's what we. That's where this came from. They they understood that it had been used in SARS, and people independently, like Brian Tyson's out in California and Zelenko's in New York, but they read the literature. They did what doctors should do scientifically. They read the literature. They figured this out. They went back in history. They said, "Hey, we may have a drug." They started using it. They figured out other protocols. And they just saved lots of lives now. But but what happened is when Trump mentioned, I thought, oh, that's why they don't want it. I'm embracing this drug, right? Oh, and I said, oh, they just said, orange me. I'm sorry. You cut in and out. You said when Trump mentioned hydroxychloroquine? Right. It seemed like that, that I couldn't figure out, based on the literature and the world experience, if this clearly worked, why would they be not jumping on it, right? And I thought, oh, it's probably because Trump mentioned it. You know, orange man, bad. That that might be it. That's what I first thought. 
Then I went back and I did some research with the literature myself. And I went back and I went from paper to research, I mean, reference to paper to reference. And I, and I went way back in time and I discovered, I found papers that, you know, the old papers that weren't written when there was computers. So they were kind of photoshopped, phototyped onto here, photocopied onto here. I found that we knew, at least in 1974, for example, that chloroquine, which is the precursor to hydroxychloroquine, could be used against viruses and could be and had 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 the ability to maybe stop viruses from coming into cells. And then I discovered a paper in 2014 after SARS. And then I found I found that paper about SARS where it was, you know, it was very useful against SARS coronavirus. And then I found a paper in 2014 that was titled um, uh uh, I don't know, chloroquine, a potent inhibitor of influenza A in vitro, meaning that chloroquine could stop, could kill the flu vaccine, I mean, the flu virus. And so I said, aha, it's not about the orange man. It's about, they don't want to lose, the pharmaceutical companies don't want you, know, you to know about this drug because you it would take their $69 billion vaccine industry to zero, essentially. They love flu vaccines, a very profitable thing. That would go down to nothing because you don't need it if you have a treatment. But then I got to say, it's not even that because it's more than that. They're purposely, I mean, the way this is being pushed in the thing, I have to say, I think it's its not, a, this, this is not about our health. This is about a, a war against us. And, and I'll tell you why I think there's two worldviews here. This is not really about the medicine that you asked me about, but if I can digress a second, I think this is important because the minute you talk about motive, you have to understand what worldviews are possible. In 2020, when this whole thing broke out, one of the things that they came up with was they, they said, well, we're, we're going to use this PCR test to see if we can diagnose COVID. And Kerry Mullis, who was the designer of the PCR test, says, you know, of course, he said, no, that's not what it's used for. You can get all sorts of junk with this test. It's not a good diagnostic test. But I will give them that. They were Let's, let's assume that the, they were thinking the best of us and they decided to try it anyway. Well, they designed these tests and they sent them out to the labs. I read the lab, I read the lab brochures. It clearly says in these brochures, do not cycle these tests more than 30 times. You go 20 to 30 usually. You can maybe go to 35, but you don't go higher than that. You're going to get some false positives 30 to 35 cycles and you're going to get 90% false positives over that. You know, possibly. I mean, they didn't say a number, but they. But we know that from other other sources. A high rate of false positives. The more you go over 35 cycles. But what was happening in 2020? You had labs all over the world. Pretty much all the labs of any significant size were cycling these tests at 40 to 50 cycles. 35 mm -hmm. to 45 to 50 cycles. So you have to ask yourself this question. And what was the effect of that? The effect of that was to highly inflate the numbers of people infected with the disease. And to make people scared because of that. So it harmed the American people. It harmed people all over the world because it made us afraid so we could then be pushed into doing things that weren't reasonable. But but why? But the question is who would – what happened? So one theory, one world, I mean, view is the idea that all the lab managers in the world in 2020 had some kind of brain hissy fit and just couldn't do their job. These are highly trained professionals. They know how to set up tests. They know how to not get false positives. They know how to train their staff. They know how to double check their work. If they had a test that had a 90% false positive in a, in a hospital lab, they'd be fired. So these are highly trained professionals. You have to believe that everybody had a, a that there's some group psychosis of lab managers in 2020, or you believe 
labs all over the world were instructed by somebody or something to, to overcycle the tests. So, now, I personally don't believe in the group psychosis of lab managers. So right. then we get to that. It's when you ask me why, why would they be doing this, somebody told these people to overcycle the tests, which resulted in a, in a major psyop. Okay, and that somebody or something that told these lab managers couldn't have been at my hospital because it was more hospitals than that. Couldn't have been in my state because it was all the states and couldn't have just been in America because it was countries all over the world. So you're Mm -hmm. talking about a transnational entity Mm -hmm. group of people that that are pulling this off. And I tell people in my little Monday night podcast, I always say, you know, if you think we're fighting a virus, then you're going to be a victim. If you think we're fighting a war, then you have a chance of being a survivor and maybe even a warrior. That's where we are. This is not about a virus. It's about a war. And so why did they do that? People like Fauci were paid to do this. He might be an ideologue that's involved in this. I think he probably is you know, deeply involved. But he's kind of what I call the mob in mob terms. He's the bag man. He's the guy that spread money around, made a lot of this happen. He's not the ultimate bad guy, though. They're trying to throw him under the bus because they don't want you to start looking for the ultimate bad guys. But yeah, it's a right. group. It's it's somebody above the U.S. Right. So them. basically, so you're saying that uh, these were global directions that were given. That this wasn't just limited to um, states if or countries. Can come up with a third view. I'd be glad to hear it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, I don't believe in group psychosis around the world. So I think somebody told them to do it. And it was transnational, supranational. Right. right. Um, touching on um, Dr. Fauci a little bit. Um, I, you know, when this pandemic first started, I started learning about the gain of function research. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, the gain of function research is when um, you study these viruses and you try to make them stronger. You help them gain more functions and try to attach them to human beings. Um, So I think Fauci was funding uh, this gain of function research, which would make these viruses much deadlier and and, um, see how they could be attached to humans. Um, And then there was a moratorium or a ban placed on this gain of function research, but then it was still conducted even after the ban. Um, And and then the the research was um, outsourced to Wuhan, China. Um, why do you think he pursued this kind of research? He says he testified in Congress. He says he he wasn't involved. But what do you think? You think he was involved, and why do you think sure, that he pursued involved. that? Because we could trace the money to his allocation, you know. And and it isn't hard, by the way. In February of 2020, when we first started hearing about this, I started reading everything I could, and I found I found where the money had come from to the Wuhan lab in two. Two aliquots. I mean, in 2014, he gave him $3.75 million, I think, and the same amount in 2019. And so these investigative journalists, this is another thing about why the media doesn't report things, is who really are the media. But these so-called investigative journalists that are now saying, oh, Fauci, that dirtbag, you know, we sh- we were just fooled by that guy that he funded this stuff. Well, how could they be fooled? If you, it took me five minutes to find this out, and it was really stealth. I looked on the NIH website. How hard was that? So these guys, these guys are just, they're just pretending they didn't understand what was going on, I think. But the the real story here is that Fauci has spent over 40 years in one desk, essentially, as the as this this administrator at the um, NIAID, which is part of the NIH. 
And during that period of time, he had over $800 billion cross, you know, his final signature. I mean, this is a huge amount of allocation of dollars. And it went to two things. You're, you're exactly right. I mean, you've, you've done your research because this is exactly right. But it wasn't just them. There was, uh, there was at least like a hundred and there was over a hundred billion dollars. I don't know exactly how much went to gain of function research. And gain of function research means essentially, let's, that's kind of a nice term. Let's call it the, um, the uh, take mother nature and mess with it to hurt humans research because that's really what mm-hmm. it is. So he yeah. gave money to a bunch of people. And it turns out when you look at the, and I don't know if he, I think he funded Dr. Shu, who was working in, with Frank Plummer in Winnipeg. I think there was funding from, because I know he was funding, listen to this, he was funding a PLA virologist to go back and forth to our USAM or our bioweapons lab. Now, it used to be illegal under President Clinton. You couldn't have anybody working in a lab, even as a graduate student that was from a non-allied state, if you had any potential to make bioweapons there. So this is insane what we've been doing. But under this money that he's been funneling around, I mean, money went to Wuhan, money went to Frank Plummer's lab up in Winnipeg, the only level four lab. Money went to uh, USAMRID through the DOD. Money went to... uh, uh, Went to... uh, Ralph Barrick, you're right, down in North Carolina, big player, and probably uh, many more. I think uh, I think probably the I can't prove this one, but um, the Louis Pasteur Institute I think probably got some money. But there's been money showered around a lot of researchers, and then. But the second part of it is he also showered money to university hospitals, to research institutes, and things. He it wasn't his money, right? He's taking money that actually was funneled through these big like Rockefeller foundations, Gates foundations. A lot of the bigger foundations funneled through or old time funneled through Gates into the NIH. And then Fauci was kind of like I say, he was the bag man. He's doing the bidding of the global uh, cabal or whoever that's running this show. The guys in the shadows whose names we probably don't know. Um, but he put the money out. And what the effect it had was to cause universities and hospitals to overbuild. And so now they're dependent. If they don't do what he says, that's the function of the mob bag man, right? He gives mm-hmm. the the money, and then if they don't do what the mob boss wants, he goes out and breaks their legs. Well, you know, Fauci goes out or talks to them severely. So Fauci does all <laughs> and if And then if the university that now overbuilt, depending on this NIH funding, starts to use hydroxychloroquine, this is one, to your point, starts using hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin and doesn't push, say, remdesivir, which is a Fauci partially owned, NIH-owned uh, product, then they don't get the funding next year and they collapse. So that's why there's mm. a control mechanism that goes behind this. And that's also why they're trying to throw Fauci under the bus. If you notice, there's two things that they, they want to say here. If whenever they mention Fauci, oh, Fauci's such a bad guy that he's, you know, going on, you know, he did all this. And he he gave all this money to this Wuhan lab that then wasn't very competent and let it leak out. That's the story they want you to imprint in your brain cells, right? They don't want you to think that Fauci took big money from big bad guys higher above him. They want you to say, he's the we case is closed. We got the bad guy. Don't move on, move on. Nothing else to see. Okay. They don't want you to look higher than Fauci. And they don't want you to suspect that this wasn't a lab leak from Wuhan. You know, it wasn't a lab leak. Where it who put it out? I have no clue. I have some thoughts, but but it was not a leak. It was not by accident. It was by it was by intent. And 
um, and they don't yeah. want you to say those. Yeah, I mean, for me personally, you know, once you notice a pattern of behavior, I think um, things <laughs> stop being coincidences after a while. And um, yeah, and, I, and your article, you talked about these medical journals and these funding streams for these universities. And um, you just touched on it um, by saying that these funding streams for these universities will stop if they don't promote the drugs that they're being told to promote. So I, I find that interesting. Um, you did an interview, uh, I think it was a few months ago with Alex Newman, and just wanted to get into this a little bit. Um, I think you, you talked about uh, eugenics or you referred to eugenics in a sense. And um, you talked about a vaccine that would um, that could has the potential to depopulate certain groups. And uh, you mentioned Sir Burnett from Asia, and then you mentioned um, Project Coast. Uh, oh, yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, sure. And, you know, when I, I can't even remember how I went down this rabbit hole in the past or how I got there. But I think that the point was that I was looking at Australia because there was a study done in 2015, I think, that is key to consider about when we look at what's going on. I mean, there's so many weird things about this vaccine program that, you know, it has to be done really quick, has to be done under emergency use, even though this isn't that deadly a virus, has to get, everybody's got to get vaccinated, not just a few. We can't leave one unvaccinated. That defies all science and all medical knowledge. That's not the way it works. That's that, don't tell me you, don't ever mention the word herd immunity if you want me to believe that you have to have everybody vaccinated. There's, that's not the principle of herd immunity. And then there's just like so many things like this they are pushing you. I mean, if, why are they, why, are they, my favorite is giving free lap dances if you get a, a vaccine out in Las Vegas. Or, is that or, real? Or a, yeah, that's real. Or a joint in Colorado. But, you know, the, oh. the more despicable ones are the, the ones like, you know, Henry Dorley Zoo was giving free rides on the train for kitties who got a vaccine. So, mom, let me have a, you know, this is, so there's something weird going on here. Vaccinating our military that should never be vaccinated with us. Even if even if we find later in a number of years, it's a good vaccine, okay? You don't do it this way to the military because you can't afford to be wrong. So there's a lot of stuff going on that doesn't make sense. And when you go back and you look at, I mean, and this, this again, speaks to motive, which I they always say in court, you know, I'm not a lawyer, don't speak. The, the, the person who, um, uh, what I want to say, in, in Australia, there was an article about this, it's called... Um, uh, Oh, I'm having a brain black of this. It's 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 like self-disseminating vaccines for emerging infectious diseases. And the point is they claimed that they had a mouse population that was too many and they needed to decrease the population. So what are they going to do? Well, what they decided to do was they had they developed a self-disseminating vaccine. And I'm just gonna say, as a as a casual observer, looking at the way it was constructed, it's very similar to the Johnson vaccine. It was a uh, DNA vaccine type the thing. John, which vaccine? But in any, Sorry, you uh, the Johnson. Johnson. The Johnson, Johnson. Johnson. Okay. Yeah. So, um, but it's, but it, but in principle, it's happening. I think with all of these vaccines, because, and I'll tell you about that in a minute. But, but basically, what they did is they figured out mathematically they need this many people or this many mice uh, to be sterilized to get the population down X percent. And they had, once they did this, they, they could run the numbers and it was the precise science. But the first case, what they did is they just picked up a bunch of mice and they vaccinated them. And this vaccine used an attenuated virus that was specific to the mice. 
that also would distribute to the ovaries of the female mice and sterilize them. But it also did something else. It's, it shed on other mice. So it was a self-disseminating. It worked by shedding. Where have we heard that term recently? So it worked by shedding. So these mice shed on another another group of mice when they were released back in the wild that then became sterile. And then it shed on another group of mice that became sterile. And then it kind of fizzled out. Okay, so that sounds very familiar because that's what we're dealing with right now is these vaccines, besides the fact that they apparently distribute 65 times more in the ovaries than they do in skeletal muscle, they're shedding on other people. And they're, they're causing, you know, when the very first people started getting vaccinated, you'd see women all over the place started complaining of menstrual period irregularities. Little girls would start bleeding that shouldn't be bleeding. Old women that start re-bleeding that shouldn't have been bleeding for years. I had a nosebleed. I mean, it, it was it was it was noticeable. This was happening. They were calling people. They're calling doctors. We were hearing it every day, and so this kind of makes me wonder what's going on. And then you go back in time. You can go back in time and look at what the Rockefellers have actually said. You don't have to trust me about this, but they've talked about the depopulation agenda. The control of population is our biggest thing. You know, worldwide crisis, we have to control population, club of Rome, all these different things. So and it's not just the Rockefellers, but the big guys with lots of money, they seem to love to worry about depopulation, which is something that even Plato talked about. It's something that mm-hmm. tyrants just love to talk about is that to keep their nation secure, they have to keep the population in check. So what I'm what I'm saying is that that's, that's a potential, you know, that, that made me suspicious right there. But then... Then the question I came then a question I came up with is, do we really have an airborne virus? If it was an airborne virus that you know, look at what it did. I believe it really did. You watch those doctors, and being somebody that worked in a hospital in my life, when I saw those poor doctors in December in Wuhan, I said, "There's something really bad going on over there," and I started following it very early. Well, you know, you saw those. You saw the body bags that I don't. I think this was before all the fakery started. You know, you saw people dying very badly in, in those cities. And then in, in Lombardy, Italy, when the doctors started dying, I said, OK, now I'm a little worried because doctors, you, if we don't know how to save ourselves, there's a real problem. Um, you can get overwhelmed with bodies and with people sick, but you, we pretty much save our own staff to try and be able to help others. Then it went to New York and we had a initial, initially when it went to New York, it looked kind of the same as, as these other places. Now. But what happened is when it after it hit New York, it just the whole thing kind of fizzled out. It it when it first went up, you heard epidemiologists all over the world saying, "Oh, this is the biggest R naught value, meaning the biggest transmissibility we've ever seen in a virus," and it's dying and people are dying. I mean, this is going to be horrible. I mean, if the original if you followed the original curves during the first month or so in in America, you would have predicted that by July we would have had two million dead, but that didn't happen. So what happened was it just fizzled out into a normal death curve that we have every winter from flu, you know, whatever the seasonal diseases are, okay? Pneumonia, lots of things like that. So, and what happened? In my opinion, this was not, if it had been an airborne virus, this would have ripped through, just like smallpox used to in the old days, this would have ripped through Paris and it would have ripped through Pittsburgh and Omaha, Nebraska and your city. I mean, it just would have gone everywhere, right? But it didn't do that. What it did was it just kind of fizzled out and then we saw stragglers around and it went down to almost nothing in the summer, just like normal flu season. But then it started going back up in the summer 
during the vaccine season. And if you, there are several countries that are like the five worst countries of the vaccine right now are the, are the five worst countries. No, so let me say it right. The five most vaccinated countries are now on the on the kind of like the don't travel list because they're having these huge outbreaks of COVID. You know, right. um, on the other hand, like Gibraltar is one of them that's just, you know, going through the roof and they had this whole this vaccine. They're almost 100 percent vaccinated. Albania is very few vaccines and they're fine. They're not dying over there. In India, people don't just listen to CNN news. They watch the reality because they don't have a TV or whatever, these little villages. And they could just see what was happening with their own eyes. They didn't have somebody getting between them and reality, telling them what reality is. They figured it out pretty quickly. And when the vaccinator team started coming around to these villages, they would throw stones at them and force them out of the village. I thought that was pretty, pretty wow. clever. So, wow. so we're seeing that. So what really happened here, in my opinion, is we had a contact pathogen. What the, A self-disseminating contact pathogen, just like the self-disseminating stuff in the in the mice, it, dis, it dis, once you got it, it looked infectious because you disseminated it to somebody else. But it didn't start it as a virus, and, and I think that that makes the most sense. I can't prove this part, but that makes the most sense. So, what do we call a virus anyway? We say it's a small amount of, of genetic material wrapped in a lipoprotein coat that gets in your mucous membranes and makes you sick. What would you call a, a, a genetic toxin or a genetic poison? You'd say it's a synthetic bit of genetic material material, man-made, wrapped in a synthetic lipoprotein coat that gets into your mucous membranes and makes you sick or kills you. So you see, we, we, are, we have entered the world, and, and the military knows this. There's a big um, strategies for the, the defense of, or defense strategies for in the world of synthetic biology or something. I can't remember the exact title, but they're talking about this. You know, Craig Ventner made a, an artificial cell, literally, essentially created life. Well, we can create viruses that are not considered a lie, but we can take what we call viruses and we can manipulate them through what you're calling gain of function, which is really this, this gain of, the, the term gain of function makes it sound like it's turning into something better. No, we are taking these viral-like nanoparticles that we find in humans or bats or whatever, and we are making them deadly to humans. That's right. what this is. And that's yeah. what I think happened and there's actually i think the epic times actually has a video so i saw it somewhere of somebody uh they were just opening up you know, i think it was maybe in an apple store in wuhan at the at the early part of this and you saw somebody just opening up the computers you know how they have them on the on the display touching all the keyboard and then shutting the lid opening touching shutting the lid just down the way Mm -hmm. you know, what's that all about? But that's the kind of thing that would do it. You could spread it by touch. You could spread it around manually. Then people touch those keyboards. They pick the stuff up. It gets on them. No matter how clean you think you are, no matter how many times you wash your hands, the reality is if there is a thing like cholera, which is a bad deal, these infections that are they're feet, what we call fecal oral, people don't like to think of the of eating their own poop, but it happens. Unfortunately, in no matter how clean you are, a certain amount of your saliva, sweat, you know, tears, yeah. urine, and everything are on you, and they get yeah. spread around. And so that's the problem here. And I think that's what happened. And then when things would have just been dying down, what did we do? We caused this false PCR to take over, and now it ramped up, and then we started talking about cases. Before this, nobody called a case anything except a sick person. But to make the numbers sound woo big and scary, suddenly we started talking about 
uh, cases as just a positive test, which now we know is over 90% false positive or meaningless. I mean, mm. you know, the broken clock gets the right time twice a day. Yeah. So just to touch uh, on a few points before um, we wrap up, um, you talked about this study in um, Australia in 2015 about the self-disseminating um, vaccines that was used to decrease the, the mouse population. Do you think that these vaccines um, or people that are being vaccinated are shedding um, these vaccines or this material from the vaccines onto non-vaccinated people and, and in turn getting them sick? Do you think that's a possibility? Well, we know that's happening. We know they're shedding because when we started, and by the way, we know it because we're doctors. People that actually take care of patients, they hear the stories, they listen to patients with, with compassion, they hear these stories, and every doctor out there is probably hearing them, but many of them are just discounting them. But here's how we really know. Because when we started, like I was on different, different podcasts with other doctors and things, and we'd be in public talking about this stuff. And what would happen is we never heard a thing from the FDA, just crickets, nothing from the FDA, nothing from the EMA, nothing from anybody, okay? But guess what? I found that, well, we found, somebody else found this. There was an FDA uh, circular that went out to their, to all these vaccine researchers. That, that Remember, they, this, these weren't first researched to be vaccines. They were researched to be cancer, uh, genetic-based cancer treatments and gene therapy. So this thing, they call them, actually, we now have a name for them, a real name, are VBGTs, viral-based genetic therapies. That's what we're dealing with here. So they sent the FDA in 2015, so they've known about it for a long time, sent out a circular to their researchers and said, we know people are shedding these things. We just, we need you to do these, do this. You need to protect people that are elderly or immune um, or neonates. And if anybody's, you know, you notice in the EUA this time, they said, if anybody's around pregnant women or women of childbearing age, we need to know. Now, that's pretty interesting, right? Why are they so worried about that? Well, the next thing that they said, uh, the next thing they said in the FDA circular was, we don't, it could be genetic material, it could be viral material, it could be something, well, that's kind of complicated. Hold on. They don't know what uh, it is. Dr. Merritt, you, you cut out on the last maybe oh, uh, 30 seconds. Sorry. I'm sorry. I think I was saying that the, they know they're shedding, but they don't know what they're shedding. So in the okay. circular that went out in 2015, what they said was it could be genetic material, it could be viral material, and it could be something new that's recombinant. We don't know. Isn't that comforting? And then they said it will shed maybe for 10 weeks. Most people stop shedding. And we accept elderly that could be shedding forever because they may be chronically infected with these with these drugs. So that's what they seem to know. And there was an e there was a, a 2007 or 2008 big uh, European conference run by the uh, European Medicines Agency, like our FDA, that looked at all this, and they basically said the same thing. I think that's where the FDA got their their data. So we know that they've known about it. They didn't tell us. Again, if you really cared about us, why would you just speak up and say, oh my, you know, we discovered something bad and you guys need to stop? No, they let pregnant women be exposed. They let neonates be exposed. The very same things they said in those circulars not to do. So I have a real problem with thinking this is for any good purpose at all. I, I really do. I mean, as a, patient, as a patient advocate, I just don't think this is right. And, and the, um, 
so that's all that's the deal about shedding. And here's where because the most tragic. Think about this. If you're shedding the spike protein and the spike protein with its lipoprotein coat goes to the ovaries, and, and that's why, I mean, why are little girls starting to bleed? Why are women having altered menses? Why is this all happening if it doesn't have something to do with your reproductive cycle? Now, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. I'm as far away from that as possible. But my friend Christian Northrup, that's a famous OBGYN doc that's written books on, on healthy reproductive living and things like that. I mean, she says that when you start seeing abnormalities in this in men, women's menstrual cycles, you're seeing uh, you're seeing uh, that. Well, the saying it the other way: when you have normal menstrual cycles, it's a sign of reproductive health. So you're seeing unhealth here. You're seeing problems with women's reproduction, and that's mm-hmm. and I've already had somebody tell me that even just after COVID, now they can't seem to get pregnant. So I do think there's a risk here, and it just seems. Think about, you know, I guess at the end of time. Look, we're supposed to be cautious. You know, we're not supposed to, when you come into the doctor's office, do you really want your doctor to, without telling you the potential of damage, experiment on you without telling you? That's essentially what's happening here. We should be protecting our population, not experimenting on them. There are so many other options we have for treating people and keeping them healthy. And and they don't even tell you the simple things like take vitamin D. You know, um, vitamin D is one of the biggest things that prevent you from ending up in the in the in the um, ICU or dead. Now, mm-hmm. for all the billions of dollars we spent on the CDC, why didn't they tell us? They knew, but they didn't tell us. Okay, yeah. the Indonesians found out. I mean, they knew from other viral literature, but the Indonesians actually did a study and they showed for the 800 people that came into their hospital that you, if you had your vitamin D level above 30 you had a 96.2% chance of walking out the door, okay? Mm -hmm. So it's only the people with vitamin D levels below 30, they're at risk. Now, the problem we have, and the reason that a simple statement by somebody like Dr. Fauci could have made a huge difference to what we saw last year, was that I used to live in Yuma, Arizona. It's the the sunniest city in America. But people think they're going to get the vitamin D from the sun so they don't take it, and they come up with levels in the 20s, okay? So- In northern climate above the equator, you can't get enough. And it's even worse for black skin, which I didn't really realize that until now, but I looked into it. And so that's maybe one of the reasons that blacks are somewhat over and and Hispanics are somewhat overrepresented in the in the death count here, or at least in the ICU and the care it was earlier, because I think that the the, the vitamin D levels are maybe even lower, you know. Mm. That's a, that's a problem, and it's something so simple. So I don't think they care yeah. about the people that are yeah, running. It's, it's it's not widely promoted. Um, touching on a few points in regards to what you just said about um, Hispanic and um, Black communities, you talk a little bit about Project Coast, um, and there was a uh, there there were these talks about um, race racial specific bio bombs in South Africa. Um, <laughs> What was that about? I, I've never heard about that, but I have well, heard about race. Well, it's hard. I'll tell you why you've never yeah. heard about it because, um, well, first of all, bioweapons research was top secret, okay? In the early 70s, the, the um, I mean, President Nixon had everybody sign, I think it was 71 or 72, they signed the bioweapons treaty and over 160 nations signed on to it. But we know that the Soviet Union at the time turned right around and created the largest bioweapons program known to mankind. So what are we going to do, you know, in the American military and the bioweapons people? 
I don't think we just rolled up and went home. I have a feeling we offshored it. Well, as it happens, in the early 80s to the mid-90s, there was a thing called Project Coast, and it was run by the South African Defense Force. Um, uh, Wutar Basson, I think is the guy's name, was uh, was one of the military heads of this. But but their avowed goal was to decrease the black population in South Africa through bioweapons. Now, um, this came out where this came out through Desmond Tutu's Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and unfortunately, a lot of that has that material that they uncovered then was completely snuffed. I mean, it was completely buried. So I don't know how. That's one of the things I keep saying. When I get time, I want to go back and look at all that. But that's that's for another day. So one of the things we know though is that we we debat, we claimed we had nothing to do with any of it. We weren't doing bioweapons research, yada yada. However. Uh, there was a guy named Larry Ford. From he was an OBGYN doctor from um, Los Angeles, and to everybody's outward appearance, I mean, to outward appearance, he was a family man, good Mormon, you know, OBGYN doctor. But it turns out he was going back and forth to South Africa with pathogens, including like like cholera that had been altered somewhat, and things. They were trying to figure out what they could do to target the back black community. With they did call it, and they actually had a. And there's a word in Afrikaans like kafir, which is kind of a worse word than than the black community, if you know what I mean. And they had the the kafir killing germs or the black bombs. That's what they called them. So what what the point was is to come up with something that was not going to affect everybody, right? They wanted, to, and one of the things that these guys remember, what, there are many, there were a bunch of suicides around this. Okay, Larry Ford's not with us. He committed suicide later. And so there are very few uh, people that can speak about it. But one guy who did years ago said they rem- they called it Project Larry and they remembered him coming over and teaching them how to turn everyday items into bioweapons. So what he's talking about there is pathogens that can be contact poisons. So I, I think that we were working with it. I mean, I think that's not the only thing. There's a, there's a famous quote. Um, well, I don't know if it's famous. I may, I'm gonna try and make it famous. It's a quote that I don't have in my head completely, but it's from the book uh, Unrestricted Warfare by Colonel Zhao and Wang, who in 1999 wrote the book. They're two PLA colonels. And they say, they talk about how someday, someday you, pe- people will wake up to find that every the, the items they considered benign, kind, and gentle items have taken on a pathologic and fatal significance. In other words, what they're talking about, again, is turning your toaster into a bioweapon by coating it with something. And that's, I think that's where this is all going to. There's a whole another hour lecture on whether we even have viruses the way we think we do. It turns out there's a lot of stuff. And there's so much other history about this. I'm going to tell you something that's come out recently is, because I know a lot about the 1918 pandemic, and that's not exactly what we're being told either. For example, one of the reasons they died, the young men died in Riley, Kansas. They died because they were taking too much, ba- the doctors were giving them these enormous doses of Bayer aspirin and they were bleeding into their lungs and dying that way. We had pathology. The reason we know that, but it was Bayer aspirin had lost their patent. And so they convinced the medical community to do that. You know, mm-hmm. we, there's a lot of stuff. But but the other thing that I've heard and I, you know, and, and, and is out there is in, in videos and, and books and stuff is that the people that died, one of the high risk factors for death was if you had taken the smallpox vaccine. You know, this is the first year that they mass vaccinated for smallpox. 
and, and in the military then. And so a lot of these soldiers that were dying were people that, that took the smallpox vaccine, not the ones that didn't. So there's a lot of confusion about this, but that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Wow. A lot of information. Um, just wrapping up uh, briefly, um, you know, I in uh, 2000, well, when this pandemic um, occurred, originally I um, I started doing a little bit of research on my own and, um, you know, I, I saw a few things that made me suspicious. And I came across this um, this Rockefeller report. You mentioned the Rockefellers earlier and the Rockefeller Foundation put out a paper called Scenarios for the Future of Technology and International Development. And in that paper, um, there's a section that talks about a pandemic. And, th- and that was written in, uh, I think that that paper was written in two th- in the 2000, early 2000s. Um, and I think it was around page 18, there's a section called Lockstep and it talks about this pandemic breaking out. And it says uh, a few countries did fare better, China in particular, the China, the Chinese government's quick imposition and enforcement of mandatory quarantine for all citizens, as well as the instant near hermetic sealing off of all borders, saved millions of lives, stopping the spread of the virus far earlier than in other countries, enabling a swifter post-pandemic recovery. That paper was written in, like I said, the early 2000s. Um, and so when I read that, I was like, um, yeah, it was 2010. Um, how could you write something so precise and so prophetic? And, right. you know, this is from the Rockefeller Foundation. And so and then, you know, you had event 201, which was a simulation, an exercise of a novel coronavirus. And then a month later, you know, what do you know? A novel coronavirus breaks out. So then, you know, I start noticing these patterns of behavior and I'm like, OK, there's too many coincidences. And then, you know, with Dr. Fauci and him being involved with the gain of function research, um, I question that, but yet this is the same guy that people are listening to for health advice. And right. so, you know, it just, it doesn't <laughs> make a lot of sense to me. So to, uh, wrapping up, what would you, what would be your warning to the, to the population as far as these vaccines and in your heart of hearts, what do you think this is all about? Well, I, I normally don't tell people to what their medical decision should be. I advise them that this is what I know about it and you got to make your own risk-benefit analysis. But quite frankly, I wouldn't take any kind of vaccine from these guys. There's something, as you kind of figured out, it sounds, there's something very bad afoot here. And interestingly, even just before that paper came out, that lockstep, apparently, I didn't know it was 2010, was the, the H1N1 pandemic. And if you look, that was like the, the dress rehearsal for this. They changed the definition of a pandemic they funded the, the 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 EMA to do all this to change the pandemic. They used the same guy that modeled the death count then for this, and it just didn't. It fizzled out too early. You know, they couldn't get enough people to take the vaccine. They couldn't get enough. The the, the H1N1 fizzled out, so it just didn't amount to anything. But it ended up damaging a lot of children in Europe with the vaccine. So it seems to me like that was maybe step one. And then they decided, well, we have to prepare the field better. They put out this lockstep. They got all this stuff going on. Um, So I I don't think this is by coincidence. I think we're at war and we're at a strange, multidimensional, unrestricted war that we've never. This is the first really modern war. You know, Desert Storm taught us a lot about weaponry and the use of air power and stuff like that. But it didn't prepare us for this. 
And I think that people, this is about our children. They're coming for you, but they're coming for your children. And that's what the masking is about. The mask is to make us less human and to people. Why do they put masks on slaves? Masks are traditionally a sign of obedience. And they, it's a sign of, I will transform into what you want me in the occult. I will transform to what you want me to be. I will be quiet. I will be obedient. Okay. That's not what you want to do to your children. Our children are being damaged irrevocably from this. Children need to see faces. Humanity is about us embracing each other. I, I think the whole thing can be summed up with this picture, these pictures in the um, in the subway in New York, where they had these, they showed a picture of this recommending how we should behave. And it had this little boy and little girl cartoon figures with masks on. And at first they're looking at each other and underneath it says worst. And then the next one is they're looking straight ahead and it says better. And then they're looking away from each other. It says best. Mm. That's the world they want to give our children. Wow. And I tell you, my friend who's a psychiatrist says, I asked him because I asked him one time, I said, please, for the love of God, tell me who these people are driving around alone in their car in a mask. I said, that doesn't make any sense in any scientific world. He said, they're Stockholm Syndrome people. They're so afraid and they've been made so anxious that they will do anything to get out of that anxiety zone, including complete rolling over to their captors, essentially. If they told me to wash my hands five times a day, I'll do it 10 times a day. Wear the mask, stand 30 feet apart, whatever you tell me to do. Well, that we have generation of them or two generations of them now and that's not something we're easily going to come out of so love of your children you know i think people need to say enough's enough i'm never going back in the mask i don't care what you say and i'm not going to um i'm not going to accede to the social distancing i'm not going to do any of this we have to say no now because i'm going to tell you there's a very small window of opportunity to take our world back we have to stand up now together. We can't, you know, look at, they're, they're picking us off individually about these vaccines unless we stand up together. If everybody stood up together, they couldn't do it. The, the nurses down at Tucson Medical Center, I understand, just said no. Enough of them said no. They'd had to drop the whole program. Tucson Medical Center could not keep their nurses. Um, that's happened around the country, but not enough. And that's what people need. We have power in numbers. Don't let us divide us. This isn't about anything else but the future of humanity. And right. that's what we need to recognize now. And it's our time is now. And I think people need to get one with God. This is a spiritual war. Mm-hmm. And and do the things. I mean, I have a I have a website that goes through the list of things you can do to be as healthy as possible. Everybody needs to have hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin in their back pocket. Get it off the feed store, get it wherever you can, get it offline. Because even if doctors now prescribe ivermectin, for example, the pharmacies don't have it. There's a a big shortage. The price is going up. There's a big shortage. Um, So you need to stock up now on things. And that's my point is take care of your own health so you can help us save everybody. It's it's now. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think uh, there's definitely strength in numbers. And, uh, you know, if people don't get unified, um, I think we will fall as a civilization. You know, one thing I noticed with the uh, the people that have these evil, twisted agendas is that they're unified in their corruption. They're That's unified true. with destroying us, but we're not unified in That's taking well, back yeah. our freedom. And, you know, um, like like they say, uh, you, know, you divide and conquer. If you can divide and get everybody divided, you can conquer them easily. You know, um, but thank you, Dr. Merritt, for um, thank you for having me contribution. on. And uh, where can people find your material? Um, go to it's three words: 
themedicalrebel.com, themedicalrebel.com. And then I'm also on Telegram at Freedom Doc. Okay, absolutely. Thanks again for your time. Thank you. All right, God bless. Be well. You too.